Today we want to just continue walking through the book of Nehemiah. Uh, we've been kind of doing this this fall, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, looking at what does it mean to take new ground for God's glory um, as individuals, in our lives, as a church, in our community, and all these things. Today we want to continue that idea. Uh, and we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 7. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 7 is your turning there. And we're going to be looking at the idea of identity and how our, our, our identity in God or in Christ uh, impacts how we worship and follow him. So as I was, as I was preparing this week, I found uh, this section from a book by Max Lucado called Unshakable Hope um, that I just thought was really helpful. So I'm going to start with this kind of this quote this morning. He said this, he said, children have a tendency to say, look at me, right? On the tricycle, look at me go. On the trampoline, look at me bounce. On the swing set, look at me swing. And such behavior is acceptable for children. And yet many adults spend their grown-up years saying the same. Look at me drive this fancy car. Look at me make money. Look at me wear provocative clothes or use big words or flex my muscles. Look at me, look at me. He says, isn't it time that we grew up? We were made to live a life that says, look at God. People are to look at us and see not us, but the image of our maker. This is God's plan. This is God's purpose, and he will fulfill it. You know, he's spot on that God's purpose, God's plan for our lives is to make much of him, to make much of his kingdom. His word says that we were made for his glory, to follow him, to worship him, to point others to him. We need to have lives that are all about him and not about us. But in order for that to happen, we have to move past, I I have to move past my purposes, my desires, my wants to his purposes. And I have to have my identity rooted in him. And that's what we're going to see today in the book of Nehemiah. It's interesting right here as we go from chapter 6 into chapter 7, we actually see a big shift here kind of in the book of Nehemiah and the focus that Nehemiah has here. He's going from building walls to now he's going to start building people, right? He's been restoring the, the walls of God. Now he's going to be restoring the people of God to their identity in him and to their purpose with him. And so God's people we're going to see here, they would lost their purpose. They had lost their way because they had lost their identity as the people of God. They had lost their identity in him. So Nehemiah is going to remind them today. So here's the big idea I want us to walk away with today. To advance the mission of God, I need my identity anchored in God. If we're going to be about him and about his mission, about his purposes, we have to have our identity anchored in who he is and what he has called us to do. So with that in mind, let's take a look at, starting in in verse 4, chapter 7. I hit this verse last week, but it's kind of a transition verse here, so I want to use it again today so you can see the connection. Verse 4, it says, The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Verse 5, Then God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it. So now he's quoting From this book he found, verse 6, it says, These were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his town. They came with Zerubbabel, 
Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Rehemiah, Naamani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispareth, Bigvi, Naum, and Bena. And then he goes on to list all these groups, all these people, and their numbers, and their families, and I'm not going to take time to read all that this morning, um, partially because we don't have the time, and partially because it's a lot of names, all right? Um, but, but you can read them, and the important thing I think we're going to see here, though, is actually the groupings that he pulls together here. And so look at this, in that verse he says, the number of the men of the people of Israel, and then he lists out all the people who were included in the people of God. Then he gets in verse 39, he gets to the priests, and he lists all the priests that came back with uh, Ezra. And then he gets down to verse 43, and he lists the Levites. Then in verse 46, he lists the temple servants. And then in verse 57, he lists the sons of Solomon's servants. But then we get to this interesting part in verse 61. Take a look at this. It says, The following were those who came up from Tamela and Telharsha, Carib, Adon, and Emmer, but they could not prove their father's house nor their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. The sons of Deleah, the sons of Tobiah, interestingly enough, and the sons of Nakoda, 642. Verse 63, it says, Also of the priests, the sons of Hobeah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife of the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, who was called by their name, these sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there. So they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. And the governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest with Urim and Thummim should arise. So there's a lot there to explain in terms of things you might not be familiar with. We'll get to that in a second. But the first thing I want you to see is this section here. As Nehemiah is reading this, as he's including this in his book, the main point here is this. I find my identity in the purpose of God. I find my identity in the purpose of God. So if we go back to verse 4 where we started, it says that the people within the city, within Jerusalem, were few. All right, so Jerusalem is still basically empty at this point. And if we jumped down to verse 73, which we haven't gotten to yet, but I want you to see these, these verses kind of bookend this whole section. In 73, he says the same thing again. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. When the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns not in Jerusalem, okay? And verse 73, there are things actually going to bridge into next week's stuff as well. But for right now, I want us just to see how verse 4 and verse 73 are kind of these bookends to Nehemiah's list here that he's including from Ezra. So what he's basically saying is, listen, the walls were up. The walls are built. They're done. The gates are on. We're good to go. The city is safe. It's secure. And yet it still lacks defense because nobody's actually living there to defend it within the walls, and so what Nehemiah sees here is that there's a security issue, right? And he's going to be working on fixing this security issue for the city, but it's actually not going to get fully resolved until chapter 11. Because as he starts to look at the security issue, he sees, oh, it's actually related to a bigger issue, and that is a purpose issue. The reason that people weren't living in the city is because they had lost the purpose for which God had brought them back in the first place. The whole reason that God brought his people back with Ezra before Nehemiah ever came was to rebuild Jerusalem and to specifically rebuild the temple so that they could restore the worship of God in the city of God by the people of God. And they had come back with Ezra 
And they'd gotten the temple done. They built the temple, which was great, awesome. But then they just stopped. They didn't build any houses. They didn't build the walls. That's why Nehemiah had to come back and do that. And they went out of Jerusalem. They went and they lived in like the surrounding villages and just kind of went on about their life. And so they hadn't fully embraced or fulfilled the purpose in which God had brought them for. But now the walls are up. It's finally safe to live there. And they're still staying out in the villages because they're missing the purpose of God for their lives. And so Nehemiah goes on. He says, God put it in my heart, basically, to take a census. And I think it's instructive here. It's important that he first says that God put this in his heart. So this was God's idea. God wanted the people counted. But why? I mean, the ensuing list of names here that Nehemiah finds in the books and read publishes, it's in the Bible not once, but twice. <laughs> Same list from Ezra 2, published again here in Nehemiah 7. God includes this list in the Bible twice. So why would he do that? So let's just be honest. You know when you're, like, you're doing your, like, you read through the Bible in a year plan? When you get to these passages with all the names, you're like, Lord, seriously? Like, like, why is this in here? I can't even pronounce these things. Like, why am I reading the Hebrew phone book right now? Like, I don't understand. But the fact that God would put these names in here twice means something, right? And the reason I believe, one reason, not the only reason, but one reason is he needs to, he's letting us know that God counts people because people count. He's making an emphasis here that, listen, Every single person on this list matters deeply to God. He sees you. He sees me. He knows every one of us by name. He knows every hair on our head. He cares about his people. Not just collectively, but individually. He cares about every single one, and so every single one needed to be counted. I think he also is doing it here to give some order for Nehemiah. Because Nehemiah now has this responsibility to lead and shepherd these people. And he needs to know who he's leading and how he's leading them. And so this helps him know where he's headed and what he is doing. And let me just be honest with you. This is precisely the reason why here at Harvest we do some of the things we do. We ask you to fill out the register every week. Some of you have been here for three and a half years and you're like, are you serious? Like, I've been doing this every week. Like, why am I still doing this? It's because people count. And we want to know that you're here. We want to know how we can pray for you. We want to know how we can care for you. It's our job. God has given us the responsibility to shepherd those that he brings to this church. And we need to know who they are. This is why we count cars. This is why we take attendance with our kids. This is why we count lots of things so that we can know and we can have order. We can understand, God, what have you called us to and how can we best do that? It's all about the people. It's not just about the numbers. The numbers are just a tool that help it, us care for and be about the people. And that's what Nehemiah is doing here with his, his census. And so he says he called them to be enrolled by genealogy. Now that's important because genealogy here is pointing them back to their family, right? Their family of origin, their family lineage that links them back to the people of God. He's reminding them not just that you're here in this province or in this state, but you're here because you are part of the people of God, his chosen people that he has called to himself for worship and for glory and for relationship. They belonged to him. 
They were called to be committed and submitted to God above everything else, including themselves. And so he's using this to remind them and call them back to the purpose that God gave them as the people of God when they returned with Ezra. He's reminding them, restore the temple. Remember? Restore the worship of God in the city of God with the people of God. And they missed it. They got the building done. They're like, oh, we got the building done. All right, good. We're done. We're moving on. But it wasn't just about a building. It was about the people of God being in the presence of God. That was their purpose. And so he goes through this big, long list here from Ezra chapter 2 of the original returnees. So all these people are listing. There's a little bit of variance, but for the most part, this is the list of people who came back with Ezra, not the ones who came back with Nehemiah, right? So he's kind of recounting as a starting point for the census. And again, just look at the groups here. He starts off with the people of Israel as a whole. So all of God's family counts them. Then he says the priests were such and such, right? These would have been the spiritual leaders of the group. These would have been the the pastors or the elders, if you will, of the group as they were leading them. And then he goes into the Levites, who would be kind of the next level of leadership. You know, they were like the worship leaders or the, the church leaders, ministry leaders, if you will. And then the temple servants and Solomon's servants were those who were serving God and serving his people in the midst of worship. And what I think is interesting is he breaks it up into these groups and he's showing that all the people at all levels were called to fulfill the same purpose of God. To worship him. To give him glory. That wasn't just the priest's job. It wasn't just a Levi's job. That was all the people of God. And he's listing them all out here to show us that. And then he gets to this last part, and he says another group could not prove their descent. So there were some that came back, and whatever, for whatever reason, or there were some that were around that whenever they were going through the list, when they were going through the genealogies, they couldn't prove that they were from an actual lineage of the Jewish people. And so the governor said that, okay, well then, for now... Until that can be proven, you're excluded from the family of God. The priest, you're excluded from the holy work of the temple. You can't, you can't be worshiping and be a part of the purpose of God because you're not part of the family. Right? You, you're not part of his people. He says, until maybe a priest with Urim and Thummim come, and then we can figure it out. Which is like super weird to us because we're like, I have no idea what that is. So this was just a special technique that some of the priests would use in the Old Testament to basically discern God's voice, discern God's will on a given topic. And so basically they would say, well, if we get a priest who has that, then they can, we can put it before that question before them. They can do the, the process, and God can tell us whether or not you're actually part of the people of God. But until we know for sure, you're out. You're excluded from the purposes and the worship of God, which seems kind of harsh, but I think what it's underlying here is something that we need to remember today, even as the church in 2020, is that it's impossible. It's impossible to fulfill the purposes of God for your life if your faith and your identity are not first in him. God has a purpose for every single one of you. He has a plan for your life. And the the apex of that plan is to bring him glory. But you can't even figure that out. You can't get there. You can't process that until you give your heart and your life and your identity over to him. You have to be in the family to be able to experience his purposes and to worship him the way that we're called to do. So it all starts for us today 
by trusting in Christ. And this is why we talk about the gospel every week here at Harvest. Because it all starts right there. Because in our natural state, in our humanness, we're not running after God's purposes. We're running after our purposes, right? Our desires, our wants, our needs. I, that's why we sin. That's why we rebel against God and we don't do what he says and we don't care what he says. It's because we're running after our own stuff. And God says, that's not going to work. Because as soon as you start turning away from God's purposes for your life and running after your own purposes, you're actually turning away from him. And it creates this void, this separation between you and God. And it's so stark and it's so strong that we can't fix it. We can't get back to God on our own. And so God said, you know what, I'm going to help. I'm going to send my son, Jesus Christ. He's going to come, he's going to be born, he's going to live a perfect and sinless life on this earth. He's going to go to the cross and he's going to die for the sins of all who will believe in him. And he gave his life as a substitute for us, for our rebellion, for us running after our own stuff. And he died in our place for our sins so that we could be forgiven. And he went into the grave and he rose three days later to prove that he was God, to prove that he had conquered sin, conquered death, and to offer us forgiveness of sin. If we will turn from our sins and put our faith, our identity in Jesus Christ, he will save you. And he'll bring you into the family. And you'll get to experience the fullness of God's purpose and plan for you and for your life. But as long as you refuse to put your faith in Christ, as long as you stay outside of the family, you are excluded from the purposes and from the worship of God. And so if you're in that spot right now where you just, you feel like you don't have a clear direction, you're missing that purpose in your life, you're missing whatever it is that you feel like God has for you, and you have not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ, that's the next step. It starts with faith. It starts with identity and who he is. I would encourage you to, to press into that today. Pray and ask the Lord to do that in your heart today. Once my identity is in Christ, now I can live for him. Now I can live for his purposes, for his worship. And the same thing was true with these people. Nehemiah was trying to bring them back. Like, Listen, you're the people of God. Your identity is supposed to be in him. We've got to get that right before we can move forward with anything else. You know, before I, um, before I got married to Courtney, there were certain things that I just never did. Um, I, I didn't eat Chinese food. Um, I, I didn't go to musicals. Uh, I, I definitely didn't watch design shows. Um, I, I didn't rub someone else's feet. Like I, there were certain things I just didn't do because I had no reason to. I was bachelor Micah, but then I became husband Micah. And so over the years, slowly but surely, God has started to change my heart and change and grow me in my love for my wife. And so I've learned to embrace or at least tolerate some things because she loves them, right? I never did those things before because I didn't want to. Because I had no need to. Because I had no good reason why I should. 
I needed a better why as to why I would want to do those things. And I found that in our relationship. The same thing is the true with the purposes of God for your life. They're not going to make sense to you. You're not going to desire them. You're not going to run after them until you have a better why. Until you know the love of Christ flooding your heart and changing your life, that's the why that pushes us, that leads us into the purposes of God. But it's rooted in that salvation. It's rooted in the identity question. That's why Nehemiah first takes the people back to their true identity in God and his purposes, because they have to get that before they can move forward with any other work. I find my identity in the worship of God before the work of God. Worship has to come first. It has to be a heart thing first before it can move out to the hands and be a work thing. So now we get to the end of this list, and then he kind of summarizes here. Look at verse 66. He says, The whole assembly together was 42,360 people, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736, their mules were 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. See, they even counted cars. You see that, right? Like, they even counted, right there, okay, never mind. Um, Our parking team totally appreciates that, amen, all right? Um, Point number two that we see here from these verses is this. I experience my identity in the people of God. I experience the fullness of the identity I have in Christ in the people of God. It says here that the whole assembly together was 42,000, right? You see the emphasis there on whole, together. You're looking at it as a, as a community. The emphasis is on the togetherness, not on the individuals at this point. And the Bible almost always, as you read through, you'll notice, the Bible almost always emphasizes the community over the individual. Now, the one exception to that, obviously, is salvation, right? Nobody can do that for you. You have to make a personal decision to put your faith in Jesus Christ. But beyond that, the majority of the language in the Bible talks about community, right? In the New Testament, think about all the one another's that we find in Scripture, right? Love one another. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another. Live in harmony with one another. Build up one another. Accept one another. Admonish one another. Care for one another. Serve one another. Forgive one another. Be patient with one another. Be kind to one another, comfort one another, encourage one another, exhort one another, pray for one another. That's not even the full list. God calls his people to live in community. It's part of our identity in him. And we get this from the very beginning, actually. God said it was not good for man to be alone. Because we were made in his image, and even our God lives in community. The Trinity, right? Three in one. And he created us to be people of community. And experiencing this together with others. So he calls the whole assembly together, and it says that they are, again, they were enrolled by genealogy. He said that earlier. And again, the emphasis there is that this togetherness is not just a group. This is a spiritual family. 
right? That we are all in this together because we are all sons and daughters of the Most High God, if you've put your faith in Jesus. We're never in this alone. We're in it together. We, we're together in purpose. We're together in worship. We're together in work. We're together on mission as the people of God. This is what he calls us to as the church. This is what he called them to here in Jerusalem. I can only fully experience my identity in Christ when I experience it in the community with his people. I can only fully experience my identity in Christ when I experience it in community with his people. There's a together element in the family of God that brings us this fullness. And what's interesting is that almost everything in our world and in our culture today is the opposite of this, right? We are so individualistic. We are so much about individual, uh, individually driven. We live in our private homes, with our private yards, and our privacy fences. We take selfies on our iPhones, and then we tweet how no one understands us because we're so unique and so individualistic. We divide and lay claim and hold tight what we believe is ours versus what we think might be theirs. And we hear this mantra over and over and over again in our culture, look out for number one. But God has a different approach. We aren't just supposed to look out for our own interests, but for the interest of others. Philippians chapter 2. Right? So part of my identity in God means putting others before myself. And you know where you can't do that? Alone. You have to be in community with others in order to put them before yourself. If it's just me, I'm all alone, I'm doing my own thing, if I'm being my own individual, I can't interact with people in that way. So I experience my identity in God in the community of God's people. That's the second part that we need to know about identity. Find it in the purposes of God, I I experience it in the people of God. And then the third thing, look at verse 70, we'll finish out this chapter here. It says, now some of the heads of fathers' houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priest garments, and 500 minas of silver. And some of the heads of fathers' houses gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 derricks of gold and 2,200 minas of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 priest garments. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. Last piece here that we see is that I respond to my identity with passion for God. I respond to my identity in God with passion for God. It says here that because the people were pulled together, because they were here to do this work and their purpose was in God, that they gave to the work. Now, just to clarify, this isn't the work that Nehemiah is doing, right? Again, he's recounting this list from the book of Ezra. So they were giving to the work of rebuilding the temple. That's what they're giving into here, right? And what's interesting to me is if you go and you read Ezra 2 in this same section, it doesn't just say they gave to the work. It says that they gave free will offerings to the work, which I think is an important detail here because it points to us the fact that this was an act of worship. This giving was not demanded of them. 
It was not required of them. They weren't pressed on this. This was an overflow of their heart for the Lord and what God had called them to. And so they freely gave as an act of worship unto the Lord. They gave to the Lord for his purposes out of the overflow of their love for him. And their identity in God made them respond in this passionate form of worship through giving. Now, just to clarify, giving is not the only way to worship God. It's not the only way to show passion to God. But that's what they did here, and it's certainly a good one, right? It's very tangible, right? It's it's a very tangible act of worship that we can do. It's a very sacrificial act that we can do to, to sacrifice our flesh and our desires for the Lord. It's discussed over and over again in God's word, giving and money and generosity. And Jesus himself in the New Testament says that it's one indicator, not the only, but one indicator of our heart and a heart that is truly set on God more than the things of this world. So these people here, we see this act of passion, this act of worship flowing out of them. And as I was thinking about this, you know, this really shouldn't be surprising to us at all because people give to what they're most passionate about, even in the world, right? When someone's passionate about you know, beating cancer or some other disease, they give to cancer research, right? When someone's passionate about their college, they give to their alma mater. When someone's passionate about their political party, they give to that party. We give to whatever we're passionate about. People just do this in general. This isn't a, isn't a Christian thing. This is just a people thing, right? We even do it sometimes in the way we spend our money. We, we show what we're passionate about, right? When we buy tickets to go see that sports team, when we spend money on the arts or on that outdoor adventure, it's showing that we're, we have a passion for those things. That's not a bad thing. It's just our world and our own experiences even shows us that what the Bible says is true. That when we identify with something, when we're strongly passionate about something, we oftentimes will give to it. And so as Christians, if our identity is first and foremost in God, in Christ, then our, the passion of our lives should reflect that in every way. So here, he breaks it up again into categories. Did you notice that he says the governors, or the governor, gave this, and then the heads of the houses gave this, and the people gave this. And so it's showing here two things, I think. Number one, first of all, they all gave together, right? From the highest to the lowest person, everybody gave something, into the work. Everyone did their part to be moving forward the work and the purposes of God. However, notice they all gave different amounts, right? The leaders gave first, and they gave more as they were more able to do. They were probably more well-off because of their positions, and so they sacrificed more, and they sacrificed first to be an example to the people, But then everyone else came along and they played their part too and they gave into the work as well. And I think this is an important concept here in the word of God as we think about how we give and how we're generous to the Lord is it's not equal giving, but equal sacrifice. Sometimes I think we can get discouraged. We're like, well, I just, I don't have as much to give. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not in that place in my life or I'm just not like, or whatever. That's okay. God's not looking at the amount. He's looking at your heart. These people gave not because they were made to give. They gave because they wanted, because they had a heart unto the Lord. And whatever amount that was that God put on their heart to give, God was honored by that. And God loved that. 
And so it's not about equal amounts. It's about all of us equally sacrificing whatever the Lord leads us to give in order to honor and to worship him. So I respond to my identity in God with passion for his mission. I respond to my identity in God with passion for his mission. It's all rooted in this identity in this heart. So to advance the mission of God, I need my identity anchored in God. Right? That's the whole crux of this passage. And that's what we're going for here at Harvest. A church of disciples whose identities are so strongly anchored in God and his worship and his purposes that he can use us to further his mission. But it starts with our hearts being anchored in the Lord. 